Where were you on the afternoon of December 7th, 1941? If your name is Michel Piastro, you were at Carnegie Hall tightening the strings of your violin for the Sunday afternoon performance. If you are Gerald Nye, you are addressing 2,200 America Firsters in Pittsburgh. If your name is Saburo Caruso, you are waiting in the outer office of Cordell Hull. If you are a sailor named Tomish at a place called Pearl Harbor, you and 2,116 of your buddies will be dead when the day is done. Interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Pearl Harbor was attacked on December 7, 1941. We're told that on December 10, 1941, Japanese forces attacked the Cavite naval base in the Philippines, where Dorothy Still, an American Navy nurse, worked tirelessly to relieve her patient's pain during World War II. In the hospital, the lights had to remain closed when the bombing alerts began, marking the beginning of the darkened, isolating despair that worsened a month later when Dorothy's group of nurses were taken as POWs. We learn then it was early in 1942 when an American fleet reservist had escaped. Nurse Peg Nash was on duty in the ward the morning after the escape and lined up with her patients for the morning head count. The prisoners bowed to the sentry and then heard him count down the line in Japanese. Ichi, ni, san. Several of the patients stood nervously waiting for the guard to discover what they already knew. The guard reached the end of the line and turned back, quietly counting to himself. Peg assumed the situation was no longer her problem, but the guard wanted immediate retribution and demanded the summary execution of Captain Davis, as well as the corpsman and nurse on duty in the ward. Shoot nurses too, he insisted. The sentry reported the escape to his superior, who contacted the Japanese military police in order to launch a full investigation. The military police outranked the guard and ordered him to suspend the executions while they completed their work. The prisoners whispered broken bits of information in the interim, warning each other of the promised terror. In the ward, Nurse Peg knew Captain Davis and the corpsmen were marked for execution she did not realize she was included in the lineup as well. Chief Nurse Cobb soon saw the small, dark-haired nurse hurrying over with a concerned look on her face. Peg confided that she was fearful one of her corpsmen was going to be killed. Cobb studied the young woman and realized she still didn't know she herself had also been selected for execution. Cobb pressed her lips together and remained silent. She was not going to give Peg or any of the other nurses reason to worry, but she had every reason to fear they would be burying Peg before sundown. Peg had the habit of smiling, even when something pained her. It was a nervous type of smile that slowed her speech as she carefully enunciated her words. Her constant smile was intended to make others around her more comfortable. 
but it likely pained Cobb to see the condemned woman unwittingly trying to make the situation easier for others. Tension strangled the small prison as the morning progressed. Dorothy and the other nurses reacted to sudden movements or loud sounds. No one was certain how the execution would proceed, but it was anticipated the guards would order the entire prison to line up and witness the brutality. Within a few hours, Dorothy saw notices posted around the building. She approached one of the neatly printed pages and saw it was a warning. If anyone else escaped, the two men who slept on each side of the escapee would be executed, along with the nurse on duty. The note was a reprieve for the prisoners already slated for death. The military police apparently did not care to spend time on the issue, especially when the Japanese army had other plans. As it happens, Nurse Peg Nash, Margaret Nash, whose life was spared this time, which was not the last time she escaped execution at the hands of the Japanese, Peg Nash was from Wilkes-Barre, and she is one of the Navy nurses whose stories are told in a gripping account by Emily Lebeau Lucchese. Emily Lucchese is a reader and lover of books and libraries, and she explains, I found Dorothy Still's memoir on a top shelf at my local library. One of my most pleasurable pastimes is to wander library aisles and greedily pick off titles that piqued my interest. I immediately felt a connection with Dorothy. I wanted her story to be fully told the way she likely intended, but hesitated because that damn psychiatrist still haunted her doubts. And Emily Lucchese tells the story of the struggles of all of these Navy nurses in the POW camps in the Philippines during World War II, filtered through the experiences of Dorothy Still, whose memoir she discovered by chance on that library shelf. The book Emily has written is titled, This Is Really War, The Incredible Story of a Navy Nurse POW in the Occupied Philippines, issued by Chicago Review Press. We had a chance to speak by phone with Emily Lebeau Lucchese about her study and how she came to her calling as a writer. I think that my love of writing comes from my love of reading. I love books, particularly historic nonfiction, that reads like a novel but is historically correct and takes us into the life of another person. And so that's just what I set out to do, but to tell stories about women and to, to write these books that, that take people into another place, uh, into another person's life, and to enter a, another woman's life who lived before us and to learn from her experience. So it you know, obviously takes you a long time to get there. So I began my career as a journalist, and I was a freelancer. I wrote for the Chicago Tribune for about a decade, and I contributed more than 800 stories. And um, I was pretty bored by it, to be honest with you. It felt like I was, I was working at the story factory. Now and then I'd get a piece that was challenging, but overall I didn't. So I decided this is my dream, is to write these books. So I need to work on some of my research skills. So I went for my master's at DePaul University and, and worked on uh, my historical research skills, my document analysis skills. And then I had the opportunity to go to University of Illinois at Chicago as a fully funded PhD student. 
so I, I really gained a lot of my analysis skills and my ability to, to go through documents and analyze them and to piece the story together. A lot of that came from, from my, my PhD. That's the academic and professional groundwork. But there's a family inspiration, too. You dedicate this book to Grandpa Leon J. LeBeau, Ph.D., U.S. Army, 5th Medical Laboratory, South Pacific. Oh, absolutely. I mean, our, my, my grandfather, I was fortunate because my grandfather had five children, but only four grandchildren. And so we got so much attention, and we loved our grandfather. He looked very close to us. And for, for most of my childhood, he was actually a professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. So he would always drive past our house on the way to and from work. And so we had a very close relationship with him. And he had been a medic in, in the South Pacific, and he worked in the laboratories as well, testing for diseases. And he, he told me a lot of stories, and as much as he was willing to say uh, at the time, and I think that, that did have an influence on me when I decided to write about these women and write about this war, that it had been a history that I'd been hearing about in pieces and never receiving a full amount since I was a young girl. Was it the case that it was serendipitous that you were in a library and the book, as they always say, if you're ready for the book, the book will fall off the shelf into your hands? Is it, was it something like that? It pretty much was, actually. I do feel that it was really serendipitous, and I do feel in a way that, you know, we, we look back at, at the way that Dorothy Stoll Danner told her story in her memoir in 1995, she was very much still restricted because after the war, a psychiatrist told her when she went for help, he told her that she didn't suffer and that she was a woman and she was a nurse and that she was lying if she claimed that she had suffered. And I think that held her back. We now know that the Army women in particular were told not to talk about their experiences. And so we know these nurses did not in their own time ever talk about their experiences fully. And so I think that Dorothy Sildaner needed someone to look at it with a fresh, fresh eyes, but also to look at it and say, uh, the people who told you to be quiet will not tell me to be quiet. So let me do this for you, and I will tell your story. It's a rich and complicated story. Provide some context for us because we have some connections here to some of these women. Sure. So in short, in 1942, beginning in 1942, there were 12 U.S. Navy nurses who were stationed at the Cavite Naval Base in the Philippines, and they were taken prisoner of war by the Empire of Japan. And they should have been repatriated as medical corps but instead they were sent to a concentration camp for civilian men, women, and children who were citizens of allied countries. And at this concentration camp, which was in a former university called Santo Tomas, these nurses were under no obligation to provide nursing services, but they maintained rank and they provided nursing care tirelessly for the duration of the war. And in May 1943, the 12 Navy nurses agreed to transfer to a countryside camp called Los Baños, along with 800 men, and they would be the only medical care providers at this camp. And as they left, 
the uh, other inmates watched the nurses climb aboard trucks, flatbed trucks for transportation. And the other inmates began to clap and cheer for these nurses to thank them for all they did for the inmates. So as these, these nurses are weaving, someone uses the overhead speaker system to play the Navy March song, Anchors Away. And that was because these nurses were the 12 anchors. They anchored hopeless and ailing inmates to life. There were inmates in, that, in, in this, this concentration camp who didn't have anybody. They had limited food, limited hope, but when they got sick and they went to an infirmary, they had a Navy nurse. And the kindness that these nurses showed these inmates, particularly at the end, right? At the end of the war, these inmates were receiving 500 calories every other day. And yet the Navy nurses still showed up and worked shifts. They had no vitamin supplements to give, no medicine. All they could give is kindness. And in doing so, they anchored these inmates to life. And one of the 12 anchors was from Pennsylvania, and she was from Wilkes-Barre, and, and that was Nurse Margaret Pagnash. And she was a tremendous person who provided care for, for inmates, even though at the end of the war, she weighed 68 pounds and she had tuberculosis. She was still showing up for shifts. And to give you a sense of, of how phenomenal Nurse Pagnash was, the morning that they were liberated, the inmates had heard rumors that they were going to be executed, the entire camp at Los Banos, which was 2,400 inmates. And they'd seen the sentries set up machine guns around the, the camp perimeters and then turn the barrels inward. And yet Nurse Nash turned up the night before for her night shift. It might have been her last night on earth. Fortunately, it wasn't because they were liberated uh, about six hours before the scheduled execution. And uh, it might have been her, her last night on earth, but she still showed up to serve others. So she's really a, a hero, a profound hero, and, and you all get to call her your own. And I really hope that maybe every year the local school does a report on her or the local library has a bulletin board to remember that you had a profoundly brave woman come from your hometown and save lives. Thank you for sharing that about her. And you also write a remarkable sequence, the way you revealed to us what happened when she was caught in the wrong place at the wrong time and had to witness the torturing of a man the Japanese were punishing. Yes. She, it, you know, in my research, I really came to appreciate Nurse Nash, who I have <laughs> never met personally, but I, I read her interviews. She gave a fantastic oral history in which she was very in-depth, and she did, unfortunately, witness great violence in the camp, and, and in one particular incident, she never fully admitted, I actually had to cross-reference different sources to see what she, she still couldn't speak about, and this was all the way in 1994. She still struggled to find the words to speak about it, and that was she had been pushed into a crowd that was forced to watch the torture and execution of, of a young Filipino resistance fighter. And so this did not happen uncommonly when they were at Santo Tomas. Uh, very often when the Japanese military decided to execute a resistance fighter, 
they would bring the person into the camp and then force whoever was standing around to to watch this this terrible violence. So poor nurse Peg Nash, she saw this violence, uh, and she also saw a tremendous amount of aftermath of violence when she nursed the survivors of the bombing of Cavite. She saw tremendous injuries and casualties, and she never stopped in 12 hours, never stopped providing nursing care to sailors, to soldiers, to civilians who came in looking for help. Uh, she, she was really this strong woman. She was about 30 years old at the time of her capture, and she was energetic and spirited. She was smart. She had a very good way with words. In fact, the book title comes from, from Nurse Nash. She, when she walked into the ward at Cavite, directly following the bombing, she saw the casualties who had already arrived, and she said to Nurse Dorothy Still, she said, oh, my God, this is really war. One of the lighter titles from the book also comes from her, and that's uh, a book chapter called I Die Before I Wore Those, and that is right before the bombing, the nurses are given sailors' uniforms, these, these pants, these dungarees, and told, well, uh, it won't be suitable for you to wear your white nurse's uniform in, in, in wartime, so here, wear these, these men's uniforms. And she looked at those dungarees and said, I die before I wore those. And uh, it had everybody laughing. And in fact, several of the nurses remembered it all the way in the 90s when they gave their oral history. So Peg was this incredibly spirited woman. How did her life play out then after the war? So Peg had actually been engaged prior to the founding of Cavite. And she was engaged to a naval officer, and they met in Guam. And then prior to the war, she, she was transferred suddenly to the Philippines. She'd actually been in surgery at the time and told, step away, put down the instruments, you are being transferred immediately to the Philippines. So her and her, her fiancé, Edwin, they made plans to marry on Valentine's Day of 1942, which, of course, we know didn't happen because both the bride and the groom were prisoners of war. So Peg returned home immediately following the war. When she first came back to the U.S., she weighed 68 pounds. Uh, the, the photographs are shocking. She was the thinnest of all the nurses, and she also had undiagnosed tuberculosis. So when she first came back, she was placed in, in different hospitals, and she was told she would only have five years to live. When Edwin came back, he came to Pennsylvania to see her, and she helped with his transition back to civilian life. But Peck was really dealing with what we would now say is post-traumatic stress disorder, and she ended up breaking off the engagement. She soon moved to California, and she worked as a nurse at a university in student health. And she lived the rest of her life in California, and she nursed well into her 70s. And she maintained, this is so neat, she was always interested in interior design. And in the book, you'll see where she'll come up with these ideas of, of how to, to situate the infirmary or the, the, the nurse's barracks. She actually maintained that, and I found a news article of how she had this beautiful apartment and how it was so nicely designed, and it was a, an interior design features piece featuring a, you know, a local who was Peg Nash and her beautiful apartment. So she lived out the rest of her life in, in the California sun. And so these women were really exceptional. You know, they were really exceptional. And I wish it was better remembered in history.
And I also wish that it was better remembered in history that these women, when they, they left the, the, the Navy Nurse Corps, they had their own ailments and not just physical. They never received the mental health treatment that they deserved, but they, they soldiered on. They soldiered on through life. And I think they're quite tremendous. And you said that you were emotionally affected by the writing of this book. Yes. You know, a lot of the research that goes into doesn't always show up. So I, I've done a lot of research listening to oral histories, interviews, trying to understand what it was like to experience life as a prisoner of the Japanese, both civilian and military. And it was brutal. And uh, particularly the men who, who survived there's only about five or six of them who survived the burning of the military POW camp at Palawan. It, it was brutal. There was no humanity in it because they, the men were killed by being set on fire. I ended up having these dreams where I was being set on fire, which is odd because I've never experienced being burned. So your your body can't, your your brain can't replicate that feeling. So you don't exactly experience that in the dream, but you, you end up just waking up completely terrified. So I would say... There was actually a four-month period in 2017, 2018 that I wasn't sleeping well because I was waking up for hours at a time and just trying to understand something that had happened decades before. Emily, the other medical personnel you mentioned in the story, one is a Navy nurse with surgical experience, as you describe it, and her name is Anne Bernatitis, and she returned home to Wilkes-Barre, yeah. too? Yeah, so she was really interesting because she was she was one of the, the original twelve at Cavite, and then she got transferred in the book before the bombing of Cavite. She got sent to an army hospital because they were short on nursing staff, and she didn't want to go. And there's actually this funny moment in the book where she doesn't want to go, and so she says, "Let's draw straws," and then she ends up drawing this short stick, and she has to go, and that is the short stick saved her. And, you know, effectively, what happened was that the, the, the Navy abandoned its patients and its nurses, and the Army evacuated its nurses to Bataan and then Corregidor. And the Army surgeon that Ann Bernatitis had been working with found her to be indispensable, and he said, we need to transfer her. She needs to come with us. So Ann was transferred to Bataan, and then she was actually evacuated after the fall of Bataan and Corregidor, she was evacuated on a submarine to Australia. So she came back and was able to tell the story a little bit, but she did escape being imprisoned. Yeah, so that is another strong local connection. And just one last nod to Laura Cobb, the chief nurse. What was her role in making sure this unit was sustained throughout this awful ordeal? So a lot of people survived because of Chief Nurse Cobb. So... Chief Nurse Cobb was this stoic woman. I mean, if the, if the nurses were the anchors, and then Cobb was the mooring because she was stoic, she was calm, and she was always looking for ways to protect her patients and her nurses. And one of the things she did was she mislabeled malaria medication. She wrote it down as, as baking soda so that when the Japanese guards, shortly after they were taken prisoner of war, when they came through to pill for the medicine, they saw it mislabeled as, as baking soda, and they left it be. So that would have been certain death for her if she'd been found out. But she took these risks, and as a result, 
in the coming years until the very end of the war when they were out of all medicine and they were actively dying, there were people who had their malaria treated with this contraband medicine. Chief Nurse Cobb also kept records which were illegal in the concentration camps. Prisoners were not supposed to keep any type of journal, any type of record. And Chief Nurse Cobb would hide, whenever they had a transfer, she would hide them on her body and, and transport the women's records underneath her uniform. And what that did was enable the Navy to acknowledge that these 12 women maintained rank and provided tireless care. And so they were all promoted at the end of the war, and they all received back pay, which is critical to note because when they left the war, they pretty much only had the clothing on their back. And one nurse had two cans of corned beef. Another nurse had brown sugar, which she ended up giving away. They had absolutely positively nothing, and they had back pay. So that was helpful for them to restart their lives when they got back to the U.S., Can you tell us that story about Dorothy Still and the way her life came to a close? The way I ended the book was purposeful because Dorothy and I addressed the fact that the nurses did not, they received medals and they received honors, but they didn't receive the unit commendation that they deserved. And they also did not receive any mental health treatment that they they so badly needed. And that nurse Dorothy Still was overtly denied by a naval psychiatrist on the account that she was a woman and a nurse. And so I wanted to make a point, though, that they were remembered and that they were remembered particularly by their own. So when Dorothy died in the summer of 2001, her family had her her buried at Arlington National Cemetery. And after the ceremony, the, the members of the Navy Nurse Corps asked her family to come to a ceremony because they had something planned. And so it turns out they had what was called the passing of the flag or old glory. And typically this is is a ceremony that's done for a a flag officer and for when that person is retiring. And Dorothy retired several ranks below a flag officer. And she, she wasn't retiring. It was a funeral. But the Navy Nurse Corps completely bought tradition. And they did a passing of the flag ceremony in her honor. And I believe that when they passed it from woman to woman, nurse to nurse, they were validating Dorothy Still and the 12 anchors and what they did for all those inmates at Santo Tomas and Los Baños. And I believe they were saying when they passed it from woman to woman, they were saying, I hear you. I hear you. What does the story that you're telling here with these remarkable women, what does it have to say to us today? Gosh, um, I think that, I think what it has to say to us today is that remarkable people do great things like these Navy nurses did, and then they need to be lifted up. And I put in the the book that, that anchors, these women, the 12 anchors, they stopped hopeless and alien inmates from drifting, but they needed to be lifted up themselves. And I think that it says to me today that we need to be very mindful of mental health treatment, particularly for our medical caregivers, that there are some elements of nursing that are highly exposed to PTSD, in, in which the, the, the elements of their job on a day-to-day basis are risk factors for PTSD. And so we need to be openly talking to our modern-day anchors 
and, and saying, how are you taking care of yourself? What, what's going on with you? How did this make you feel? And to make sure that, that we remember that our anchors need to be lifted up. Emily LeBeau Lucchese, speaking with us about her most recent book, This Is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines, issued by Chicago Review Press. Emily talked with us especially about nurse Margaret Peg Nash from Wilkes-Barre, and she also introduced us to Anne Bernatitis, a nurse also from Wilkes-Barre. Their stories come out in This Is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines, and that again published by Chicago Review Press. Emily LeBeau Lucchese is a journalist. She has written for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the Baltimore Sun. She has written for the Chicago Tribune, and she has taught courses in media history, media criticism, and journalism, as we suggest she is a journalist herself. And she is also the author of Ugly Prey, and that concerns the real story of one of the characters we know from the movie Chicago, the Hungarian ballerina. And so Emily has her own website, and it's emily-lucchese.com, E-M-I-L-I-E-Lucchese, L-U-C-C-H-E-S-I, emily-lucchese.com. She is Emily Lebeau Lucchese. And for information about the book, ipgbook.com ipgbook.com We heard from Emily Lubeau Lucchese of Chicago about This Is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines issued by Chicago Review Press and she has her own website emily-lucchese.com E-M-I-L-I-E hyphen Lucchese, L-U-C-C-H-E-S-I dot com and the publisher ipgbook.com ipgbook.com If you are particularly interested, we heard a good deal about nurse Margaret Peg Nash from Wilkes-Barre who plays quite a role in the telling of this story and also of Anne Bernatitis who has a cameo role to play in the story because she was actually able to be rotated out even though she was one of the original nurses of the group and that's emily-lucchese.com